unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Bejnov. In a few weeks' time, climate negotiators from around the world will descend on Glasgow, Scotland for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. Amid dire warnings from climate scientists about our warming planet and desperate calls for stepped-up action, India finds itself at the center of the conversation. At home, Indians are debating how to tackle climate change without hampering an economy that has started to slowly recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. To discuss India's options and the path forward, I am joined today by Jayant Sinha. Sinha is a member of parliament from the ruling BJP, representing the constituency of Hazaribagh and Jharkhand. He previously served as Minister of State for Finance and the Minister of State for Civil Aviation. He is currently the chairperson for the Standing Committee on Finance. He has been a key figure in India's ongoing climate change debate, and I'm pleased to welcome him to the show for the very first time. Jayanth, good to see you. Very good to be with you, Milan. So let me start, I think, maybe from a 30,000-foot level. Back in July, you wrote a piece in the Business Standard with Anshu Bhardwaj, we'll link to that piece, in which you sort of sketched out three possible pathways for India's carbon emissions over time. Now, these three pathways, as you might expect, have different ramifications, both for climate change as well as the Indian economy. You call these three pathways business as usual, low carbon, net zero. For our listeners, I think it's probably worth going through each of these uh, just so they're familiar with, with what they mean. Let's start with business as usual. Tell us about what this pathway means in terms of India's carbon emissions and when those might peak. So business as usual, Milan, uh, represents the trajectory that we are on right now. And this trajectory reflects uh, all of the NDCs, that is the nationally determined contributions uh, that we have uh, committed to as part of the 2015 Paris Agreement. And these were fairly ambitious targets that we set ourselves. Uh, one was to uh, get our carbon intensity as a percent of GDP relative to 2005 levels uh, down by 33 uh, or 35% uh, to implement uh, 450 gigawatts uh, of uh, solar energy and also to improve our uh, forest cover. Now, we are doing a terrific job in meeting these commitments, unlike most of the other countries uh, relative to their Paris uh, Agreement commitments. So we've done a terrific job in meeting those commitments. And uh, we are uh, therefore representing that as our uh, business as usual case, which is the policies that we have. Now, these policies also include some of the work that we're doing for electric mobility, which is also uh, quite progressive. Uh, the problem, of course, with the business as usual case for India is that even though we are meeting our uh, NDCs as per the Paris Agreement, uh, our carbon emissions uh, are not showing any signs of peaking or even declining. So let me make that very clear. Today, the world emits about 55 billion tons of greenhouse gases, which is measured in terms of billions of tons of carbon emission equivalents. So the world emits about 55 billion tons of that. Of that, India contributes three and a half billion tons. Now, on the business as usual trajectory that we are on, uh, even as we meet our Paris agreements, even as we do better than, in fact, we had committed to to the global community, our carbon emissions will continue to increase and, in fact, get to somewhere between uh, 6 to 10 billion tons, depending on which modeling framework you look at. Uh, but 
even as the world heads to net zero by 2050, by 2050, under the business as usual case, Milan, uh, we will be somewhere between six to 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent uh, emissions. Uh, so this, of course, is something that uh, is of great concern uh, to the global community and to all of us as, uh, as global citizens, because if the world has to get to net zero to keep global warming at one and a half degrees centigrade or even two degrees centigrade, uh, India cannot be on a business as usual trajectory uh, where we are between six to 10 billion tons. Okay, so it's pretty clear now from uh, various think tank reports, commissions, even the UN's work itself, that the world is generally doing a poor job as a community in terms of reducing emissions, addressing the challenge of climate change. And of course, as you mentioned, now much of the debate is focused on what India is doing. India has uh, accomplished or even you know, exceeded uh, its commitments that it made uh, in 2015. But the question is whether it should become more ambitious. And in that case, it has to make a choice whether to pursue uh, what you call a low carbon strategy or a net zero strategy. Now, before we get into the trade-offs, because you've written quite extensively on the trade-offs, tell us a little bit about what those two divergent paths entail in terms of targets. So the low carbon trajectory is one in which we basically stabilize our greenhouse gas emissions. As I said, they are at about three and a half billion right now. So we we will try and peak at about that same level, three and a half, four billion. And then till 2050, we continue at about the same rate. So we continue to being at about three and a half, four billion uh, tons of uh, carbon equivalent emissions. So that's the low carbon strategy. It doesn't go up to uh, the six to 10. Uh, let's just pick a midpoint number there of eight. So it doesn't go up to eight. Instead, it remains flat at between three and a half to four billion. So that's the low carbon trajectory. The net zero trajectory, of course, gets us to net zero uh, by 2050. So those, in effect, are our three big choices uh, that we have uh, right now in front of us. You've been pretty clear in most of what you've written and in your policy statements. We're going to talk about some legislation you've introduced to this effect about your preference for a net zero approach. Uh, this may come as a surprise for people who have been following this debate in India because they have become quite accustomed to the pushback they receive when saying India should adopt a net zero goal. A lot of Indians say, well, you know what? Uh, we aren't the principal emitters. Uh, the advanced industrial countries are, and so therefore, um, you know, uh, we, we shouldn't be pushed as far. Yet you're doubling down on the net zero approach. Tell us why. Uh, yes, Milan. So I have spent two years uh, doing very deep analytical and modeling work looking at these different uh, carbon uh, pathways and trajectories. Uh, and what all of my research uh, has shown uh, is this headline. Net zero is net positive for India. I'll repeat, net zero is net positive for India. And it's net positive for India because it improves India's competitiveness uh, and drives job creation and economic growth. So let me go over the four reasons why I think uh, net zero, in fact, is the pathway that we should be on. Number one, uh, it reduces our carbon emissions uh, and enables us to contribute to humanity's goal uh, of stopping climate change or uh, you know, reducing climate change as much as possible. And we need to do it for our sake. We need to do it for humanity's sake. So that's uh, the number one reason to do that. The number two reason for going to net zero is that it actually enhances India's competitiveness. Green technologies are now more cost effective and better than brown technologies. Another way of thinking about it is that 
24 by 7 solar is now cheaper than 24 by 7 coal. So if we want to be a more competitive economy and compete globally, we need to transition our economy towards green technologies and get to renewables and electric mobility and green hydrogen and all of these underlying technologies that are actually superior to the brown technologies of today. So the number two reason is global competitiveness. The number three reason is that it is actually better for us uh, from an economic perspective as well. All the modeling work that I've been doing with various different expert modeling groups around the world has shown that we will have more job creation, higher GDP, and uh, also reduce our fossil fuel imports that are between 150 to $200 billion a year. We're importing fossil fuels to that extent. And therefore, by focusing on renewables, focusing on green hydrogen and so on, we are going to be in a situation where we will dramatically improve our macroeconomy, dramatically improve our balance of payments because we won't be importing uh, this vast amount of fossil fuels, the 150 to $200 billion. And the number four reason, Miller, very important reason. We will prevent the massive number of deaths that are happening every year due to air pollution in India. So India has about 20 million deaths a year as per you know the demographic statistics and so on compiled by the government. WHO and others uh, have uh, analyzed these deaths and uh, they believe that somewhere between two to two and a half million deaths a year are being caused by the staggeringly high levels of air pollution that we have. Uh, by way of comparison, during the COVID pandemic, government statistics suggest that about 450,000 people have died of COVID. And yet, with air pollution, we are causing the deaths of two to two and a half million people. So four or five times as many as uh, have died because of COVID. So by stopping the use of fossil fuels, by moving to cleaner, greener technologies, we are going to prevent a staggering loss of human lives. Whether you look at it in human terms, in terms of the lives lost, or whether you look at it in economic terms, in terms of monetizing those lives lost, uh, you will find that it is a massive number. So literally, these fossil fuels are killing us because of air pollution. Uh, and so for all these four reasons, uh, I strongly believe, uh, number one, uh, contribution uh, to humanity's uh, fight against climate change, number two, our competitiveness, number three, economic outcomes, and number four, uh, health uh, outcomes. I think it's vitally important that we transform our economy get it to what I call the green frontier, where we are competitive and we are at net zero. So let me ask you about the economic ramifications here. So you recently introduced uh, a, quite an ambitious private member's bill on the floor of parliament that lays out a framework for India to achieve a net zero target by 2050. Now, you also happen to be a member of parliament representing Hazaribagh in Darkhand, which is well known as a coal producing district. Many people say precisely for economic reasons that we can't uh, push India towards net zero because it is going to hamper its economy if it has to prematurely cut back on fossil fuels. So tell us about your own thought process you know, in crafting this bill. How does it square with the needs of your own constituency back home? Milan, this is based on exactly what the needs uh, of my voters are. They themselves want to move away from jobs in the coal economy, uh, which are uh, very difficult jobs being done uh, under very difficult uh, trying conditions uh, in coal mines, uh, which cause tremendous amounts of pollution, uh, result in criminal activity, uh, and thoroughly destroy and degrade uh, the, the incredibly beautiful uh, 
environment and pristine uh, landscape uh, that exists in North Chota Nagpur, which is the regional area that uh, I'm from, Hazaribagh and Chatra district and Ramgarh district and so on. Uh, so they themselves would like green jobs. They themselves don't want to do these brown jobs uh, in uh, the coal economy. And the good news is that if we start now, Milan, and that's why it's so important to have these discussions and to, to get this policy debate started, uh, it's extraordinarily important that we have this discussion right now because then we have time to undertake a just transition. Then we have time to basically move people away or help them retire out of these coal economy jobs and have their children, the next generation, get into green jobs. So when we have 30 or 40 years to plan this transition, we can do a terrific job and, in fact, undertake a just transition. The longer we wait, the more difficult and abrupt and difficult this transition becomes. So I am taking the long-term view of what's right for Hazaribagh. And what's right for Hazaribagh and what's right for the world uh, is actually uh, to retire out uh, our coal-fired power plants, to retire out our coal mines, and in fact transition the next generation uh, to greener, better jobs, which, by the way, is what they would like as well. So this is absolutely in the best interest of Hazaribagh and other coal-bearing areas in India. And uh, that's exactly why we need to start uh, these discussions right now. So tell us a little bit about the bill, Jayant. Uh, you know, uh, private member bills rarely succeed. I don't think one has passed since 1971, but they are can be very important in setting the terms of the debate, right, and shaping and influencing government policy and public discourse. Tell us a little bit about what the, the salient points of this bill are and how they push India towards the net zero goal that you have uh, justified. That's exactly right, Milan. I mean, private members' bills are essentially intended to spark uh, policy discussion and debate. And that's, uh, you know, actually what this bill has managed to do uh, by beginning to talk about a policy position for India that is different uh, from the one in which, you know, we are just talking about carbon space or climate justice. Those are also important. And I have ideas on how we can in, in balance out the need for climate justice uh, with the need to get to net zero as well. Uh, but we do need to open the policy window on discussions on net zero and how India should be thinking about net zero in the global context. Uh, and uh, with the private member's bill, it lays out a certain framework by which we can approach net zero. And there are two or three important elements in the bill. And it's, of course, uh, one that I have done based uh, you know, on what the, the, the UK uh, has done and what New Zealand has done. Uh, but basically, uh, the notion is that we will have carbon budgets uh, that are created every year, that these carbon budgets are going to be laid out for various sectors and various states. So that's element number one. Number two, there will be a climate change commission uh, that will monitor and set these climate budgets, make sure that uh, they're enforced and that uh, uh, various sectors uh, are, are following those carbon budgets. And number three, uh, that there will be an enforcement mechanism uh, so that if people don't meet their carbon budgets or are uh, in violation of those, uh, that then they'll be penalized. So uh, this is essentially the structure that I have proposed. It's very much modeled after the uh, the New Zealand bill, which most people regard as probably the best uh, legislation out there uh, to uh, to go for uh, net zero. So, so let me ask you about that, Jan, because 
the desire to essentially take global best practices and translate them uh, for an Indian context has raised some criticism. So Navroz Dubash, who's an energy and climate expert at the Center for Policy Research in Delhi, I'm sure you know his work and know him, said this about your bill, quote, the proposed bill copies a little too readily from international experience without making the effort to design institutions that will work most effectively within India. India deserves more than cut and paste, end quote. How do you react to this particular piece of criticism? Uh, Navroz is exactly right. I fully accept his criticism. It is, in fact, modeled after the New Zealand law. I'm not in any way shy about saying that. But it's really just the first step. And the very fact that he's looked at the bill and commented on it uh, is, in fact, opening up the policy window that uh, I have attempted to do. And of course, what will happen is that, you know, there will be other attempts, the government will approach it, uh, various other civil society uh, organizations have also tried to start to draft bills. And so the debate and the discussions will begin. So this was just a first stab uh, at uh, at uh, getting others to think about what a bill could look like. And all criticism uh, and debate, I think, is very welcome because it's through that process uh, that we will, in fact, be able to come up with uh, something that is far superior and much better. Uh, and it will take several years to get there. So this is just a first step. And uh, I think all criticism will only improve our efforts uh, at coming up with something. But let me just say the following, that this goal of ours, this net zero goal of ours, should be backed by uh, statute. It should be backed by legislation. It should be the law of the land. And the reason is because the transformation of the Indian economy, and it's a full-on transformation. This is not something that we can uh, do by just tweaking one or two uh, sectors of the economy. This is a full-on transformation uh, of our economy. That can only happen through massive, massive amounts of uh, capital investment by the private sector. And for the private sector to invest uh, these kinds of resources, and we're talking about trillions of dollars over the next decade uh, or, or so, uh, will require you know, a very clear policy framework and an overriding uh, policy objective of getting to net zero. And that is why legislation uh, is very important because it signals to the private sector uh, that we as a nation are committed uh, to net zero. That is crucial to reduce the risk, reduce policy unpredictability, reduce policy uh, you know, uncertainty around this, and therefore uh, lead to uh, trillions of dollars of investments. Hey, Grant the Monster listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Let me shift the conversation a bit to uh, another part of the international dimension. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry was in India recently. He held talks with your government. During his visit, the two sides unveiled uh, quite interesting new plans to cooperate on renewable energy, although there were no stated commitments from the Indian government on net zero. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about what responsibilities countries like the United States or other large emitting economies what responsibilities do they have to help India address the climate change challenge? What do you think uh, your government colleagues are really looking for countries like the United States to do? What's very important, uh, Milan, in all of this uh, is uh, to actually 
uh, balance climate justice with competitiveness. As I said, the overriding priority for the Indian economy uh, is uh, to move uh, towards the green frontier, as I call it, to move towards uh, a net zero approach, because we need to do that uh, to make our own economy competitive. However, uh, it has to be done taking into account uh, climate justice. And the fact that carbon emissions today uh, are really uh, cumulatively uh, being contributed largely by the advanced economies, by the rich, rich economies of the world. And we can't have a net zero pathway for India that aggravates uh, the inequalities uh, and the injustices that we see in the world right now. So even as India moves towards net, net zero, uh, it has to be a pathway uh, that uh, results in a more equal world and in a world that is more just uh, and uh, takes into account uh, you know all of all of the the, the problems and uh, and emissions uh, that have happened in the past, and there are various mechanisms for doing that. Uh, one, of course, is uh, making sure that uh, the most advanced and sophisticated technologies uh, are available to all countries as they move towards uh, the green frontier, and that's one way in which uh, the U.S. and other advanced economies can help India is in encouraging technology transfer. The second area in which uh, it's very important uh, to get assistance. Uh, is through uh, financing. And here the private sector obviously has to uh, do 80-90% uh, of, the, of the lifting here. 80-90% of what will happen has to happen from the private sector. However, uh, government uh, support here, government financial assistance from the advanced economy, the US, the EU, Japan, can play a very important role in what is called blended capital. Uh, so government capital, uh, either through loss guarantees or... Uh, uh, through uh, return guarantees uh, can actually make it possible for private sector investment to flood in. So that's a second area where uh, the U.S. and other countries have to contribute by using these mechanisms of blended capital. And then the third area that we need to work on is a global carbon trading system uh, where there are carbon allowances uh, that are created for uh, industries around the world uh, that then carbon can be traded around the world. And here, uh, I strongly believe, and I'm working on a proposal to this effect, uh, that we need to create a common but differentiated uh, approach uh, towards carbon trading, where carbon taxes are going to be higher for the advanced economies, reflecting uh, their past uh, you know, sort of uh, carbon emissions. Uh, those carbon taxes will be lower for India, but in effect, they will create a global subsidy scheme uh, where, uh, you know, the, 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 there will be there will be more more uh, opportunity for India to reduce uh, uh, its uh, its carbon uh, emissions uh, with support from these advanced economies. But it has to be a market linked mechanism. It has to be a mechanism that relies on market forces. And I think by setting up a global uh, carbon trading system uh, with carbon allowances, carbon taxes, and so on, we can do that. So I think perhaps in some ways the most important thing uh, that can be done. Uh, is by creating this uh, this type of a carbon trading system globally with appropriate border adjustment mechanisms and so on. The European Union has uh, started work on this, but I think this is something that has to be globally agreed and accepted. Uh, and the G20 is a very good uh, fora uh, to uh, to be able to sort all of this out. So those are the kinds of fora that we have to use uh, to get this kind of global alignment. So let me ask you about another four, which of course is this key UN climate change conference, COP26. It'll take place at the end of this month, continue into early November. 
Many countries, I think it's fair to say, are eagerly waiting to hear from India and what it might commit to uh, in the run-up to this conference. There was a Reuters report earlier this month in which a government source was quoted as saying that India plans to stick to its Paris pledges, uh, which would mean reducing its carbon footprint by about a third from its 2005 levels by the year 2030. And in fact, it's hoping to do even better than that. Um, the implication, of course, is that, look, India is already doing much more than it needs to be doing, and it's doing a lot better than a lot of big Western countries, which are pressuring India. But it leaves uh, unanswered this question of whether there are going to be any fresh commitments. It, without a push towards a net zero goal, do you think COP26 will be a lost opportunity? I really cannot comment, uh, Milan, on India's position. Uh, but there are certain principles that are very important to keep in mind as we think about Glasgow. Uh, number one, of course, is the one that uh, all of us have to work towards getting to net zero. So there's no question that this has to be a globally coordinated effort and everybody has to collaborate and everybody has to be part of it. And that's part of that common uh, aspect of responsibility, right? However, and this is the second principle, it is differentiated. And uh, those countries that have actually been uh, emitting the most carbon cumulatively over the, the last couple of centuries have a larger role to play, and that is their differentiated responsibility. And there, uh, you know, it's very unfair in some ways to ask India to do more when you yourself have been doing less, right? Uh, and so uh, that is a second very important principle that has to be kept in mind as we think about, you know, what these agreements should be. And third, I think we need innovation uh, in Glasgow. Uh, because if everybody takes the you know the, the the positions that they have been taking in the past, I don't think uh, that we are going to make much progress. Uh, so uh, the, the the countries that have been primarily responsible for carbon emissions have to step forward. They have to be innovative, and we have to rise beyond just our parochial domestic considerations to really think about what humanity and our uh, and our children and our grandchildren uh, will need going forward. All of us are stewards of this of this planet. And it's very much our responsibility as stewards to leave a better planet behind. And there, the burden of responsibility is on the richer, more advanced countries. And they will have to step up. Janet, I want to go back to something that you wrote last year in a report for the Observer Research Foundation called Getting to the Green Frontier. We'll link to that in the show notes. In that report, you and others noted there's not really one single model out there that India can follow as it refines or tweaks its approach to tackling climate change. But you do say that when you look around at the world's experience, there are several important insights that India can use to inform its own plans going forward. And I wonder if you might tell us, what are some of those key lessons learned? I mean, obviously, India is looking at this and has some benefit of watching trial and error play out in other places, right? So what is it that, that you think India can learn from what the world has learned? There are four or five very important lessons, uh, Milan, that we can learn from. Number one is that uh, climate change has to become a very important issue for the people of the country. Uh, wherever uh, you know climate change targets, net zero targets uh, have been uh, brought into law and have been followed through, it's because it's the people that want them. Uh, and right now, climate change is, a, is generally a pretty low priority for people in India. So we need to make sure that you know public awareness uh, is 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 enhanced and and people really realize that it is in their interest uh, to deal with the menace of climate change. So that's number one. Public awareness is to be very high. Uh, number two is that uh, whatever targets are set out have to be set out 
in a in a very sort of ironclad way and that's why you know i think there should be net zero legislation uh, for india we can debate exactly what the targets are and you know whether it's 2050 or 2060 like china for instance but we need legislative action we need clarity on what the targets are so that's number 2 number 3 the institutional mechanisms have to be created uh, to be able to enforce those targets and again uh, the climate change commission is is my attempt at that in uh, my net zero bill uh, other countries like the uk and new zealand have done something similar but there have to be institutional mechanisms uh, to follow through on that Uh, then of course the role of the private sector and the role of uh, financing uh, is key uh, everywhere around the world where these transitions have been successful they've largely been driven by the private sector by capital markets uh, and market forces have to be unleashed in this direction so these are three or four of the big lessons uh, to be learned uh, from looking at what germany has done california has done the uk has done new zealand has done uh, these are the countries that we looked at carefully to understand uh, how india should consider Uh, its approach uh, towards net zero. So, Jans, let me kind of bring this conversation to a close by asking you about, you know, I think what you might call the sort of unanticipated consequences of success. So, if uh, the government of India and and others uh, with influence listen to your proposals and decide, you know, what we are going to commit to an ambitious net zero target, uh, if India is not able to follow through on its pledges. um is there a risk that this actually does more harm than good you know i'm thinking here about you know what it might say about india's medium to long term credibility if it lays out a target and 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 it's a, it's a miss it's a wash do you worry about that i don't milan because i think if we get the design right and the design is all about unleashing market forces and the power of the private sector uh then it'll happen you know quite naturally and it'll result in a momentum of its own uh that'll take us towards the green frontier uh, and there i can already tell you that some of india's leading companies uh, have already made very very important and very ambitious announcements uh, about heading towards net zero they've committed in their own operations uh, to be at net zero they've committed to making very major investments in solar and uh, solar panel manufacturing in green hydrogen uh, and so on and uh, i think if we can uh, design this correctly and get our policy frameworks right and really show that this is an overarching policy objective of getting to the green frontier and getting to net zero uh, i think i think just like we have digitized our economy just like we have opened up our economy we can also green our economy uh, quite successfully as well so it's all a matter of uh, the policy framework and the design of our policies uh, if we can get them right the momentum will be really uh, able to carry us there and in a way if you look at other open market economies like the us uh, and the uk and germany you'll find that that's exactly the approach that they followed as well that doesn't mean we won't have problems i mean we know about the fuel shortages in the uk right now we know about the electricity problems that california has had there will be bumps along the way but as long as the direction is clear and policy is responsive and dynamic and iterative in terms of dealing with these kinds of challenges uh, i think we'll definitely make our targets my guest on the show this week is jayan sinha he is a member of parliament from the ruling bjp representing the constituency of hazaribagh and jharkhand he is also the chairperson for the standing committee of finance and a key protagonist in the climate change and environmental debates going on in india Uh, Jayanth, as we head towards COP twenty six, we look forward to hearing uh, what you have to say, your reactions, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Milan. Really enjoyed it. 
Grant the Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthemasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.